Welcome to Superhero Satellite, Episode 4, where the ghouls and goblins await your listening pleasure. Superhero Satellite begins right now. Now I have a story that I'd like to tell about this guy you all know me and who's scared as hell. He comes to me at night after I call into bed. He's burnt up like a weenie and his name is Fred. He wears the same hat and sweater every single day. Hey, what's going on, guys? It's Charlton Hero back at you with a very special Superblog Team-Up edition of the Superhero Satellite. This time, it's Superblog Team-Up goes to hell. Yep, and you're in store for an amazing episode here this afternoon. But we're not going to go dark. We aren't going into the darkest depths of despair. No, sir, we're going to keep it super light as we're going to cover... The Halloween issue of Peter Porker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, issue 13. Yep, you're welcome. And that happens to fall under one of my favorite imprints that Marvel ever did, Star Comics. Now, if you're not familiar with Star Comics, let me indulge you for a minute. So, Star Comics actually began in 1984. It lasted about four years. It was aimed at... I would say, a younger audience, and maybe some of the books even even younger than that. I mean, Star Comics, you know, would see the light of day only due to a fact that another company, Harvey Comics, which was famous for Richie Rich, um, Casper the Friendly Ghost, Wendy the Witch, you name it, they had a whole host of very fun stuff, uh, you know, fun issues, uh, very, very um, child-oriented books, but lots of laughs. I mean, I, I collected a whole bunch of Harvey comics growing up. And, you know, even Hot Stuff the Little Devil. If you're uh, following this month's Superblog team up, you'll know that uh, Between the Pages blog is actually doing Hot Stuff the Little Devil. Uh, one partnered up when they uh, did the ad for Twinkies. That was, uh, that was a fun one right there. Be sure to check it out. Now, onwards to Marvel. So, they're super interested in breaking into this demographic. They had the superhero market on lock. There's no question about that. I mean, you're talking about the Avengers, Spider-Man, the Incredible Hulk. They had all the big names. They had DC on the ropes for some time, to the point where DC was starting to rebrand. They were going through their crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, You know, super mega crossover. They were completely changing what they did. They had some catch-up work to do against Marvel the competition. Now, Marvel had one area where they weren't confident in, and it was the child demographic. So they wanted to, you know, get a slice of that pie. For years, companies like Dell and Gold Key, you know, held the Disney licenses and a lot of the popular kids' licenses going up through. Charlton even dipped their toes in those waters as well with some Disney books and some different... uh, different Hanna-Barbera, I should say, uh, you know, licenses. So, I mean, a lot of these companies had them on lock. But Harvey had their own unique stuff. Like I said, Hot Stuff, The Little Devil, Casper, The Friendly Ghost, Richie Rich, all their marquee here, all their marquee um, characters. Of course, this interests Marvel. They wanted to dip their toes into that water, and they wanted to outright buy Harvey Comics. That's right. Harvey was, was I would say, definitely on the decline. So, you know, the offers were on the table, conversations were being had. In the 12th hour, however, one 
of the partners for Harvey Comics actually pulls out uh, and nicks the entire deal. So now Marvel, thinking that they were going to have a nice slice of this pie and have, you know, Casper the Friendly Ghost and Richie Rich under the Marvel banner, all of a sudden that was not going to happen. Now listen, Marvel had tried dipping their toes in, you know, the license market, the cartoon, the, you know, the movie market and all this stuff with adaptations. I mean, you know, around this time they did the the Smurfs comics, and you might have seen those bundled in those three packs that you might see at a Kmart or, you know, a, a Woolco or something like that. You know, that type of stuff. So, you know, they were dipping their toes into the market, but they really wanted to wanted to get Harvey under under lock and key. Would not come to pass. So the idea came that they were going to take Harvey's talent because they're no longer employed. Harvey was technically out of business at this point. They were going to take, you know, the, the talent, move them into Marvel, but they were going to create an entire new cast of characters for this star imprint. Also, you know, licenses are going to come as well. And I mean, when I say licenses, it's almost a tidal wave of titles that this, this company or this imprint had under its banner. And we'll go through that in a second. But up front, on the, out of the launch gates, they created stuff like Planetary. Get it? Planetary? Planetary? Haha, <laughs> very funny. Wally the Wizard. They had Top Dog. And of course, the one that would almost run the Titanic into the iceberg, Royal Roy. All of which now you don't have to look very deep. These were absolutely 100% Harvey clones. The same talent drew the stuff. So, you know, a lot of these characters looked, I would say, Harvey adjacent. I think that's probably the best way to to define the characters. They weren't clones. They didn't have Casper the Friendly Ghost or Wendy the Witch. But Wendy the Witch sort of looked a little bit like Wally the Wizard. You know what I mean? So, I mean, a lot of these things were, were very, very inspired, we'll say, I think is the best word. However, one was a little bit too inspirational, and that was Royal Roy. So, you know, the story of the rich kid, you know, having all kinds of exploits was a little bit too close to Richie Rich. And the, they ended up inside the courtroom, and it did not go in Marvel's favor. And, of course, that was the first, first tremor inside the, the imprint known as Star Comics that was going to cause some trouble. So in 1985, the lawsuit happened. Marvel had to pull the plug on Royal Roy only after six issues. But they would not be they would not be without going into battle. So Star Comics hung its hat on different licenses. Now they actually launched, and this is one thing that some folks don't understand. Star Comics actually launched with the Muppets Take Manhattan movie adaptation. Now if you're like me, you love these movie adaptations. Always so cool. So when it comes to adaptations, you have to understand, I really, really thought very highly of what Marvel used to do. So they used to do, like, giant releases. Like, it used to be maybe even miniseries. So they would take something like the Dark Crystal. They would do a few issues of that. They might bundle it under a trade, like a large-size magazine format. You know, they had the Marvel Super Specials, all kinds of things. But now, they did the same thing with... The Bumpus Take Manhattan, and that was the launch title, believe it or not, for Star Comics. But it got a lot better from there. So, I mean, aside from the ones we just mentioned, I mean, Planetary, you know, Royal Roy, Top Dog, you know, Wally the Wizard, they had a whole bunch of licensed titles. Holy cow, guys. I mean, let's think about this. They had, well, we'll start right at the top. Uh, a lot of toys, even some 
obscure ones. So let's talk about Air Raiders. First two issues actually, you know, were done under the Star imprint. And others, and it's interesting because some of these, they go between Star and Marvel depending on their releases. So, you know, a title like Air Raiders, which is one of the, you know, one of those ones that came out in 87, right at the, right at the dying days of Star Comics, started under Star and then just continued on slightly under the Marvel imprint. You know, we had Animax, we had Elf, Rocky and Bullwinkle, Care Bears, Chuck Norris and the Karate Commandos, holy cow. Count Duckula was part of it. Defenders of the Earth, Flash Gordon and the gang were there. They had the Star Wars license. Think about this for a second. The title that saved Marvel from bankruptcy, Star Wars. They had Ewoks and droids. They had all kinds of different things like the Flintstone Kids, popular Saturday morning cartoons. Speaking of Saturday morning cartoons, Foofer. Who else had a Foofer comic book? Holy cow. Fraggle Rock. You had the Getalon Gang. Heathcliff. But Heathcliff had two books. Yep. The, uh, the, I would say the less popular Garfield, we'll say, had two books under Star. It was Heathcliff and Heathcliff's Funhouse. Hug a Bunch, for God's sake, in 1986 had a title, Inhumanoids, which is a very, very underrated toy line with gigantic, uh, you know, combination of smaller uh, action figures with gigantic uh, just other toys in that toy line. Just incredible. Uh, Mad Balls. Who didn't have Mad Balls as a kid? It also housed Masters of the Universe. Went 14 issues, this thing. The best Masters of the Universe comic book ever published under any banner, and I stand by that. It was just like the cartoon. The artwork was fabulous. Better than anything DC had done. If you're looking for a book that represented what you saw on the screen, bang, you had it right there with Masters of the Universe. They even did the Masters of the Universe motion picture adaptation. Believe that, if you will. Muppet Babies, holy cow, they were taking, you know, they were taking the world by storm on Saturday mornings, especially initially with their combination of cartoon and live action right on the screen. Popples, holy cow, I can still recite the Popples song off the back of the comic book. So do you remember the comic book ad that had the Popples right on the very back and it had a rhyme? And it went something like this. If Party Popple picked a peck of Popple Pals, who would be the new perky playful pals? Party Popple picked, you're welcome. There you go. I indulge you on that. How about that? Star Comics also had Star Comics Magazine. It was like a digest format, which was all the rage back then. Actually dying out around 88. So, you know, in the dying era of the digest, Star Comics was reprinting their stuff. You had Strawberry Shortcake. Visionaries. That's right. Holy cow. They had the Visionaries license. And, of course, the one title, and I will tell you this. And you pray, if you've listened to me on any other podcast, you know about this story. Thundercats was one of those titles I never, or one of those TV shows we never really got early on in Canada. I used to see it inside the pages of comic books. I used to see it advertised, you know, when, when someone would talk about comic books on, or Saturday morning cartoons on TV, there would be these little segments featuring shots of the Thundercats. I never ever got to see it. On trips to places like Florida, I would be able to get a couple episodes in. I was completely into Thundercats. We didn't get it till, I would even say, late 80s before Thundercats arrived in Canada. By that time, the, the bloom was off the rose. It had already been canceled. 
But still, I, I dug what I saw. So, on one of my first trips, this was to the big city, and I live on an island in Canada. If you're not familiar, drive into the big city. They have, and, and I'll even call out the store. It was called Sword and Steel. And they, you know, they were a collectible shop before collectible shops were a thing here on the island. And they had a whole bunch of comics. So, you know, I was I was going through the bins and I was getting, you know, my number ones. I had Legion of Superheroes number one, the Baxter run. I had Son of the Ambush Bug. And I also had Thundercats number one. And I had seen this inside the ad of all the comic books. So, you know, if you're like me, you know, you always wanted to order comics. Every single comic you'd get would come with, you know, a, a mail-order comic service of some sort. Thundercats was always there and it was the hot book. Oh boy, hot books. You know, I was the Overstreet kid. I used to have my couple editions of the Overstreet Price Guide, and I would scour through each price, and, you know, I, I, I just, I was in awe when my books would go up, and I was so proud. So when I saw Thundercats number one, you gotta know, this was like getting, like, like this was the Ark of the Covenant for me. So I brought it up to the counter, so happy with this, and a guy told me it was garbage. He literally said, why are you buying this garbage? As a kid, growing up, th this just about kills you. And, and he recommended me a couple comics. I didn't want it. I held my ground, but I was, oh my goodness, the wind was out of my sails. I felt like a moron. I went home with Thundercats number one. Now, the comic he did recommend was Watchmen number one. So maybe, just maybe, you know, he probably was in on something I didn't know about. But, by God, I still have my Thundercats number one. So there you go. That's my Star Comics story. But, on to Star Comics. This ended in 1988. And one of the titles we didn't discuss was an anapromorphic title about a pig version of Spider-Man. Yeah. A pig version. I, I did not say that. It's literally a pig who wears a Spider-Man costume and lives his life as Peter Porker, the Spectacular Spider-Ham. That's right. Peter Porker, the Spectacular Spider-Ham. Because he's a pig. Get it? <laughs> uh, at the time, it uh, it's one of those things that I saw issue number one and I had to leap. I had to have this thing. So, you know, he, he's a parody version of Spider-Man, obviously. Created by uh, Larry Hama of G.I. Joe fame. And Mr. Tom DeFalco and Mark Armstrong also has his name on there. Now, his first appearance, believe it or not, was prior to the debut of Star Comics, and it was in Marvel Tales, T-A-I-L-S, starring Peter Porker, the Spectacular Spider-Ham, November 1983. So, you know, it's just one of these one-shots, just a little humor mag. Um, but it was followed up by this bi-monthly Peter Porker, the Spectacular Spider-Ham series, starting in May of 1995, under the Star imprint, which was kind of cool. Now, they were edited by Larry Hamm itself. And guess what? This character exists in the real Marvel Universe. And not only does he exist, he's on the big screen. He is part of the cinematic Spider-Man universe. So this character actually, you know, was, it was in the animated version of Into the Spider-Verse. And you're going to be able to see more and more and more of Spider-Ham. You can finally get the collectibles of Spider-Ham. He's the one character from the Star brand, an original character, who's literally maintained everything, you know, 
that was promised with this character. And he's, he's far outlived the imprint, but I will say we're going to talk about Volume 1, Issue 13, came out in January 1987, called Old MacDonald's House of Horrors. That's right, House of Horrors. And our team right now is, obviously, it's edited by Mr. Larry Hama of G.I. Joe fame, like I said. The executive editor was Tom DeFalco, the EIC editor-in-chief, Mr. Jim Shooter. Pencils by a gentleman I have never seen before. Joe Abello. Now, he did Spider-Ham. He also did, and this I had to literally research this, What If Number 34? What If The Watcher Was a Stand-Up Comedian? And a claim that, the, I thought it was several issues he did. He did one, and it was literally a single page. And it was literally parody advertisements for different What If comics. So get these. I'll run these by you. What if Tony Stark owned an auto plant instead of a weapons factory? Oh. Yep. He becomes Limo Man instead of Iron Man. What do you think about that? Hilarious, of course. How about this one? What if Sue Storm had become the thing? And you get to see Johnny Blaze, or I should say uh, Ben Grimm, becomes Invisible Man, and Sue Storm actually becomes uh, a version of the She-Thing. Looks exactly like the uh, the thing, except she's wearing a blue dress and has blonde hair. You have to see it to believe it. And in one that really, really uh, resonates today, if you're a fan of uh, Marvel's on-screen stuff, what if Moon Knight got all his abilities mixed up? And you see him as a cab driver, and he's literally knocking out some penny-pinching scum. So, yeah. So, there you go. Mr. Joe Abello. There you go. I will say about Joe, he can draw the living crap out of Spider-Ham. So, it's pretty cool. Anyway, we are going to start this particular episode. We start out with an innocent duck. Now, he's just putting up a billboard. Now, the billboard is being done late at night. I don't know who puts up billboards late at night, but I guess, you know, before sales and before different things, you you only got a limited window to get these things up. But the billboard he's putting up is advertising coming soon on this site, a mega mall, 1986. It says, more stores that you can shake a stick at. Now, as he's working away, someone creeps up behind him, flying in from above, and it's Quackula. That's right. It's a duck version of Dracula, complete with fangs, wings, and the whole Dracula attire. Now, later, we see Peter Porker, and he's watching an old horror film. And he's scared to death. He doesn't like horror. He laments that, you know, even despite being a super-powered superhero, he's even just scared of this silly horror film. So, in the moment, he hears a gunshot. He leaps, literally leaps to the ceiling. He, it frightens him to death. And as he checks it out, it's the pinhead of crime. So out in the middle of the street is this giant bowling pin of a character. And it's supposed to be, you know, the kingpin. Obviously, it's a kingpin echo. He's the size of a building. He's like a, you know, a large white uh, rat of some sort, rat mouse, in a blue pinstripe suit. And he's just wreaking havoc. He's stepping on vehicles. The cops are shooting at him. They cannot stop the pinhead. And he says, stop! I'll stop when my hands get my hands on that dirty crumb bum spider ham. Where is he? I'm going to wreck this city until I find him. Where is he, Kappa, huh? Where is that chicken? So he's calling out to spider ham. And, and you know what? Porker answers the call. 
And it doesn't take long, so after a quick tussle, Spidey hits Pinhead with a rolling, get this, web bowling ball. That's right, he literally spins a bowling ball, rolls it at him, and knocks him over like a bowling pin. Because he is basically a bowling pin. Knocks the giant on his ass, and the police swarm him for the easy win for our particular hero. The big win. So, with that quick win, he decides he's going to hop back to catch the last half of the horror film, and just in time he gets to see it. While he's watching this, you know, we find out that he's got almost like an irrational fear of, like, vampires and werewolves. And he sees this very scary Egyptian cow mummy. And moomy, as it may be. And he literally hits the roof again, this time when the phone rings. And guess who it is? It's J. Jonah Jackal. That's right, not J. Jonah Jameson. No, it's his animal counterpart, J. Jonah Jackal, from the Daily Beagle. Now, he has a late-night assignment for Peter. Peter really doesn't want any part of it, so he just does what any boss would do in 2022. He threatens his job. Yep, he threatens Peter. And instantly, before Jonah even hangs up the phone, he's already there, <laughs> waiting to take on this assignment. Now, Jonah is going to send Peter, Peter to the Catskills Mountains, where there's been reports of, like, hysterical construction workers claiming that they've seen monsters. Now, we've just seen Porker is scared of monsters. He hates them, remember? So, you know, he's, he's trying to do anything to get out of this, and he tries to back out, and he says, you know, I, I got to go uh, alphabetize my uh, Elvin and the Chipmunks record collection. <laughs> I actually had one. I don't know if that makes me a super nerd or what. I I, I don't know, but uh, kind of cool that Elvin and the Chipmunks gets a little mention here. Weird that they never appeared as a star comic. They seem like they were fertile ground for the star imprint. But anyway, Peter offers up his supporting cast. And what a cast we have here. Holy cow. Three, picture this. Three characters. A cat, a bunny, and I don't know what the bottom one actually is, but boy, do we got some stereotyping going on. We got some stereotyping going on. We got Upton. Now, Upton is the black cat, and that's important, the black cat. And he talks in jive. So his first words are, Some fool say monster stories? That's exactly how he talks. I, I cannot make this up. Underneath him is Bunsen. Bunsen is your, you know, your your standard uh, glasses-wearing super nerd. So, you know, we, we've got Bunsen. Get Bunsen Honeydew. If you're a, uh, you know, if you're a Muppets fan, you'll know that Bunsen Honeydew was the scientist. So we've got, like, a science-oriented guy, Bunsen. Underneath, I think we got another stereotype, and I don't really want to get into it, but uh, wearing pink and... You know, got short shorts on and, you know, wearing roller skates and high knee socks. And uh, his name is Jeremiah. So, yeah, three representations of, uh, of stereotypes all over the place here. Uh, perfect to be picked apart here in 2022 by the, uh, by the uh, I would call the comic police. But anyway, they're, they're here on full display. And Peter's offering him up to take the assignment instead of him. But J. Jonah Jackal says none of it. He wants Porker to look into this one, and that's final. Anyway, Peter agrees. Ah, gee. All right, Chief, but I have a feeling we're going to be sorry. Boy, he ain't wrong. So this time, the next morning, Porker drives to the Catskilled Mountains to a farm area. 
He gets on the move investigating the place, hoping that the reports that the folks of seeing the monsters are nothing more than a hoax. He sees something that scares him, though, and he rushes into a barn. Just normally what you do. So if you, I mean, listen, if you're out in the middle of nowhere, what do you do right away? Something scares you, you literally get out of your vehicle and you run into a empty barn. Sounds like a bad idea. Anyway, this is how people are killed in horror movies. Does he not watch these horror movies? That's what I need to know. Once inside, he sees a scary figure with a pitchfork. But, Porker's not alone. Suddenly, from his bag, leaps his co-workers, Bunsen, Upton, and Jeremiah. And they begin snapping pictures of the guy with the fork, the uh, pitchfork, trying to get the scoop. Now, I don't know about you. If you've ever traveled with three of your friends inside a duffel bag, there's going to be a bit of weight there. Anyway, I guess... The only way I can describe it is that Porker's powers, you know, are so that he doesn't realize that he's lifting all this weight. Now, Porker is upset. What in the name of... How did you boys get here? Then they start to argue with each other. Hold on, fellows. Methinks we've made an egregious error. The jive cat says, You said it, homeboy. That dude with, with the horns, that ain't no ghoul. And then the one in the pink says, yeah, what he said. We get to see who exactly it is. It's one of the farmer. A farmer named Old MacDonald. Now, boy, you talk about low-hanging fruit. I had to take a look at who did the writing credits, because the writing in this is not super in-depth. Of course, if you're making a farmer character, you're going to call him Old MacDonald. I don't know what to say. Anyway, he's got a farm, and he don't like all these people coming in on him. You know, he, he's got a real problem with it. Obviously, someone's broken into his barn. So, Porker, trying to do some damage control, he says, That's right, we work for the Daily Beagle, and we're out here to do a feature on the strange goings-on around these parts. Now, the farmer all of a sudden gets interested. So you're here to tell me about everyone? To tell everyone about these monsters? Porker says, You could say that, though I wish you wouldn't. So you could tell everyone to stay away from my farm? If you found out that it was haunted or something like that in it? Porker agrees. He sees that he got a thing on the go. Well, yeah, kinda. Good. Then you're welcome to stay as my personal guests. You can all sleep here in the barn if you like. The hay's plenty of soft. Thank you, Mr. McDonald. Thank you very kindly. Porker thinks to himself, that was a little bit too easy. Meanwhile, his three friends are huddled around, and they're buzzing. I don't know what they're saying. <laughs> Something is going on. But Peter's right. This is almost too good to be true. That night, it seems to rain. Boy, like every good horror movie, it's thunder, it's lightning. Rain is pouring down, like it does in every horror story. Peter is just interested in trying to get some sleep, but his colleagues... They ain't interested in that. They decide to investigate the barn, and they discover, like every other barn, it's got its secrets of its own. The gang discovers a full-on secret laboratory within the barn. Of course they do. With its own mad scientist. They come in, and you gotta, you got to think about what this barn looks like. It's an open barn. Inside, it's got all these giant old-school computers, the large, like, bookcase-style computers with all these spirals of electricity beaming out and large wires and cables. Right in the middle of the room is a table, almost like a doctor's table. 
Underneath it is something gigantic, but it's covered in a sheet. We don't know what in the heck it is, but looks like Peter's friends are going to find out. They say, truly fascinating. It's totally a functional laboratory right out of Hollywood. And look, it even has its own mad scientist. And of course, over in the, over in the corner, we get to see. There's a mad scientist named Dr. Chickenstein. He says, the time has come for Dr. Chickenstein's greatest experiment. The weather is perfect. My electric bill is paid. That infernal itching has finally subsided. All that remains is for me to pull this lever. Yep, time has come for Dr. Chickenstein's greatest experiment, all right. The room all of a sudden starts glowing, filled with computers and gizmos. They pull the lever, and something activates. Wake, my friend, from your sleep. At last, after years of research, my labors are finally paying off. With the millions of volts of natural electricity coursing into it. My creation shall live at long last. This is so exciting. <coughs> Suddenly, the body underneath the sheet starts to move. As Dr. Chickenstein says, Yes, move, my baby. Rise from your slab and join the land of the living. Come to me, my son. Come to Papa. Now, of course, this not only scares the death out of some folks, but they want to check it out. So Peter's friends, they're super interested. They want to take a look at that. Of course, you know the nerdy guy, Bunsen? He's super impressed with it. This is most impressive, biologically speaking, of course. The jive cat says, Shut up and watch, man. The other one? Jeremiah? Yeah, shut up. So he just sort of agrees. Then we get the sea chicken steins monster. Now, how do I describe this? A giant fruit and vegetable-based monster. The feet are giant pods of peas. Then you get two, I guess, cucumber as the legs. The body, the actual torso, is made out of a giant watermelon. The two arms, two pieces of corn. On the top of the pieces of corn are two potatoes with carrot fingers. And the head is a giant head of lettuce. Yeah, that's right. A giant head of lettuce with a banana for a nose. Now, Dr. Chickenstein is just electrified. It's alive! Alive! It's alive! My years working here on the old McDonald's farm have last born fruit from the giant mutated vegetables and fruit I present to you, Chickenstein's monster! And he is absolutely massive. Now, Peter's friends, they're just super impressed. They take out the cameras and they start clicking away. Click, 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 click. They want to grab the, the ultimate shot to bring back the J. Jonah Jackal. Now, this disrupts Dr. Chickenstein. He sees the reporters and sends the monster after them. The kids are suddenly scared. Scared enough to wake up Peter Porker. Peter jumps to his taps, runs to the corner, turns into the spectacular Spider-Ham, leaps into action. And boy... I mean, the whole farmhouse suddenly becomes overtaken by monsters, and Spidey starts facing off against, first, the Moomy. It looks a little bit familiar, almost like a certain, maybe, farmer we know. Now, Peter has overcome his fear. 
you know, we've seen him earlier on. He's scared to death of all these things, mummies and vampires. So it takes him a lot to overcome his fear. But he handles the Moomy, no problem. He literally wraps webbing around his legs really fast, pulls the feet from and under him, and continues on into the room. Now, he's trembling at this point, but now he has to face Chickenstein's monster. And he uses the old bowling ball trick again. I, you know what? This is the second time we've seen this. And the second time that it's completely successful. So the monster gets in zero offense. He uses the same trick he did earlier on with the, the pin king. And um, it's successful. He literally bowls his way to victory here. When his, his friends rejoice. But then we suddenly get to see the revelation. The jive cat says, Hey, everybody, get this. The Moomy dude, all unraveled, and he's really old McDonald. I guess you caught us, all right. Then he tells his story. We get to see Quackula comes into the scene. We get to see Chickenstein and, of course, Mr. Old McDonald. But we had good reason to scare your city slickers away. We was... They was going to take my farm away from me and build this newfangled shopping mall. So me and my hands, Dick and Rick, I don't know what to say there, but anyway, we thought we'd try to do something. We figured if the construction workers ever told anyone this land would be haunted, they'd leave me be. Spider-Ham consoles him. You sound like you're honestly sorry for what you did. We are! Well, since nobody was really hurt... I think you might be able to take a suggestion. The final panel pans us several months later. Well, there she is, boys. The largest produce stand in the world. Then we get to see Old McDonald's Monster Fruit Stand, which boasts the world's biggest veggies on sale here. Fruit, fruit, and more fruit. We see pears and corn on the outside. That's right. Old McDonald may have lost a farm, but now inside this new mega mall resides old McDonald's monster fruit stand. A nice big store. He can continue on his farming. So I guess all's well that ends well. Yeah. So, a little bit about this story. Yikes. I would say a little bit too juvenile. So, I mean, you know, if, if your target audience are younger kids, this is probably aimed at, you know, one step younger than that. Um, really, the art, I'll start with the art, because that, that's easy. The art, I think it's perfect for this type of comic. You know, you know, Peter and all them, they, they look, they look pretty dead on. The characters are good. I would say the, his friends are super stereotypical stereotypes of, uh, you know, African Americans, uh, nerds, um, you know, one appears to be gay. The gay stereotype is there. So, you know, they, did, they didn't really, uh, you know, they weren't worried about the, uh, the uh, culture police there on this one. But, you know, there, there's some stuff that doesn't age well, we'll say. But it's a star comic, and I think it probably got a little bit of a pass. Um, the cover is great. I definitely would have bought this. Really good visual, like I said. But the story, how many times have you watched the story? And it doesn't even have to be horror where, you know... The school is in trouble, or they're going to shut down the town, and, you know, the kids have to rally and, and save the town, or save the school, or save something. Same old story. And it's just really, you know, really weird. And, and the fact that they used just, like, 
horror characters, the, you know, the Draculas and the Frankensteins and uh, the mummies, you know, with all the characters that were in the Marvel Universe at the time, like, think, think like, Man-Thing or Morbius or, or Werewolf by Night. It seems like a missed opportunity not to transition those in, into this story, like the, the animal versions of them. I thought, you know, I thought that was a little bit of a miss. Speaking of a little bit of a miss, boy, this backup story. Nick Furry, Agents of Sheep. Not super well drawn, I will say that. Uh, uh, Mike Meller does the does the art here, um, and it's a little rough. It's a little rough. So you know, we get to see Nick Furry and and Doo Duggan inside. I guess Sheep headquarters, not Shield. See, it's now Sheep HQ, and they see that Death Squawk is on the loose. That's right, an animal version, a duck version of Deathlock. And Furry sends out an all-points bulletin that that chicken cyborg must be taken down. Of course, despite the great weaponry, we get to see Death Squawk. And he's a troubled soul, desperately, always lamenting. The whole time he's in this book, he's lamenting his existence. He's really moany, he's whiny, he's roaming the countryside, upset that he hasn't discovered his reason to live. And they're doing a very heavy-handed parody of, of Deathlock, because if, if you read any Deathlock, a lot of the book is him lamenting, you know, uh, oh, he's in great pain because he doesn't know his reason for existing. He's a machine, not a man. So they go really heavy-handed here, to the point where Death Squawk does nothing. He just literally goes around and he's complaining. He's upset. He's whining about his his, his particular flight in life. And, you know, he laments, maybe it was, you know, the childhood that made him this way. Maybe it was his teacher. His parents maybe didn't treat him the best. Maybe when it was he was in kindergarten, maybe this was a problem. <laughs> so anyway, Furry has seen enough. And he, he, he literally pounces on Death Squawk and presents him with what he always wanted, his blueprints. That's right. Death Squawk finally answers all his questions. He finds his reason for being. Then, curiously, he looks around after finding out what he's made of, and he pulls a plug out of his side and, and cooks himself. Yep. He turns himself into a full, whole rotisserie cooked chicken, where, you know, he literally microwaves himself and walks around as a full rotisserie chicken. I can't make this stuff up, folks. That's the joke. Dodo falls over from the revelation, and so do we, as we mercifully, mercifully end this backup story. Now, that's not the end. No, no, no. We also have a letters page, and it's called Pigpen. Yep, it's Pigpen. So going through this stuff, I find it curious, because, you know, we've seen the black suit in the comics, and people are demanding that Peter Porker get his black suit, and we will see that a little bit later. You have someone ask when this comic is going to end. This is where Marvel says, We have no plans to cancel the book, despite it ending several issues later. Liars, I say. Now, one would like to see Peter Porker on TV, like many other stars. May have to wait a few years, but it's going to be worth it, Mr. Christian D. He also said he'd like to see a secret furs crossover. Now, editorials suggest that he thinks that's a great idea, why don't we call it Secret Warts? Why? Why? Secret secret Furs is, is more than acceptable. But anyway, come on! Finally, 
and, th- and this was this is hilarious because if you, if you've ever read some of the Marvel comics that have come out, especially particularly during the transition from Tom DeFalco or from Jim Shooter to Tom DeFalco, there was a lot going on in their info pages. So their soapboxes and their you know Marvel bulletins and all that type of stuff, the bullpen bulletins. There was a lot of like inter-office politics weaved into you know seemingly harmless you know, narrative about comics. But you really got to see that, you know, folks were getting jabs taken at each other and, you know, some of the folks in the office were not exactly happy. And boy, this is this is one instance where they print a letter physically burying, burying the creative team on this book. So it's from a fan called Ian Freighter. And man, he just buries the book. He says he refused to buy issues three and four because he didn't feature Meller's work, and he's the guy who just did the um, Nick Furry stuff here. He called the art cheaply done and bland. I mean, let's let's face it. Seriously, is this what you print? I mean, we we all we see, you know, there's there's discontent in the office, but they really go overboard with these things. You know, they're passive aggressive, like interoffice memorandums. I don't know, I don't know, but that is the issue. That is Spider Ham. And listen, if I'm talking about Spider-Ham, I got to tell you, it's one of those things that really, really, you know, makes me smile. Every time I get to see an issue kicking around, you know, especially at an affordable price, I'm going to pick this thing up. But if you're into this stuff and you're in the Halloween type mood, Super Blog Team Up Goes to Hell continues. And boy, there's a lot more folks than myself involved in this one. We're going to talk about a few of those. So. Why don't you head over to Between the Pages blog? That's right, Karen is over there, and she's going to be talking about the Hostess comic book ads featuring Hot Stuff the Little Devil, magazines and monsters, talking all about the Bronze Age of Marvel horror comics, covers Marvel Spotlight 12 and 13, which happens to be the debut of Damon Hellstrom. That's right, everyone's favorite son of Satan is going to be discussed and it features my good friend Billy, and of course, maybe yours truly might make an appearance on that one as well. The Telltale Mind is talking about Hellcat, the ballad of Petsy Walker, or how she finally made nice with her ex-husbands. Jesse Starcher is going to be hanging out with Evan Bevins, and they're going to be from the Source Material Comics podcast. They're talking about Batman and Punisher, the crossover of the century back in the day. I remember that one fondly. They're covering Lake of Fire. In one of my favorite, oh boy, called favorite movies, Mr. Mark Radlich over on the W2M Network is going to be doing an alternative commentary with, um, with his good friend Pat on the Roddy Piper special, Hell Comes to Frogtown. I'm looking forward to that. Mr. Ed Moore, brand new to Superblog Team Up, he's going to be covering Command um, uh, Rex Zombie. No, Rex Zombie Killer. From Bad Dog Inc. and Panda Press back in 2013. Should be a good one. Dave's Comics Blog covers Superman, the Blaze Satanus War. Asterix 51 Blog is going to be covering Sunday School with Hellboy. And boy, if you're not familiar with this, Mr. Uh, Evan Bevan's writings, you're missing some stuff there. Comics, Comics, Comics Blog covers The Son of Satan and Preacher's Kids. It's going to look at The Son of Satan and The Defenders. And of course, the superhero satellite is right here as well. We're talking about... Peter Porker, The Spectacular, Spider-Ham, Issue 13. All these and more. Be sure to Google all those. We're going to leave uh, 
We're going to leave all the links right in the uh, in the description for this podcast. Be sure to join Superblog Team Up every single time it launches October 26th this round. Go on Twitter, hit hashtag Superblog Team Up, hit hashtag SBTU, enjoy the fun. Guys, thank you so much for joining me today. And if it's Halloween, be sure to go out and get that Ben Cooper costume on. You know, enjoy everything that revolves around around the Halloween season. I know I do. Go get some of that candy. Fill your boots. Make sure your kids are active. Make sure they got a costume on. Make sure they enjoy this. It's one of those nights that I always loved and enjoyed as a kid. And I hope you guys do, too. Anyway, that's it. This is Chris Bailey. This was the Superhero Satellite Superblog Team-Up Edition. And I hope you guys have an amazing Halloween. And don't go to hell like the Superblog Team-Up. Have a good evening, guys. Thanks for joining me.